0: Last week on Click Here, we talked to a PhD candidate and her thesis advisor who were doing this unusual thing. Stefan still has a lot of the physical artifacts.
1: May I can show you? Do you want to see some of them?
0: I'd love to. That's Sarah Mickeljohn and Stefan Savage from the University of California, San Diego. And about 10 years ago, they started buying all kinds of random things on the internet they were trying to prove a theory.
2: So like we have a Guy Fawkes mask, very on brand for the time, some earrings. We have some organic Colombian
0: coffee beans. They were shopping for things and paying for them with cryptocurrency to see if they could trace the transactions.
2: There was an assumption that because there were no names in Bitcoin, there was no addresses, that it was really anonymous.
0: We told part of this story last week, and all of it was inspired by a new book by Wired senior writer Andy Greenberg. It's called Tracers in the Dark, and it's all about how Sarah Micklejohn figured out that cryptocurrency wasn't shadowy and mysterious. That's because of a public digital ledger that keeps track of all its transactions, known as the blockchain, which, of course, is public, transparent, and allows everyone to look at it.
3: It's a little hard in retrospect to imagine thinking, like, oh, wow, that's, you know, that's how I'm going to hide all my criminal activity, um, you know, again, in this, like, immutable ledger.
0: A ledger on which you can follow the money to crimes it paid for and the people behind them. But Sarah's shopping spree was just an opening act in a much bigger story. It came to involve drug dealers, hackers and crypto thieves. And now... We'll go behind the scenes with some of the people who helped bring them to justice. I'm Dina Temple and this is Click Here, a podcast about all things cyber and intelligence. Today, a special live episode on stage with three people who watched and helped the cryptocurrency tracing industry grow. The session turned out to be a kind of masterclass in financial cyber warfare.
4: I still thought like if you if you're careful, if you like go through a few more obfuscating steps, like if you put your money through a few addresses before you do the drug deal or something, you can stay a step ahead of these guys.
0: Stay with us.
4: If you're looking
2: for a daily guide to cybersecurity news and policy, sign up for the Cyber Daily. From Recorded Future News, it serves up the day's most interesting and important cyber stories from our sister publication, The Record, and then aggregates all of the big cyber stories you might have missed from news outlets around the world. Just go to therecord.media and click on Cyber Daily to get all you need to know about the world of cybersecurity right in your inbox.
4: Hello, I'm Adam Fleming from the Global Story podcast from the BBC World Service. We are looking at Lena Khan, the face of the US government's battle to regulate big tech. She's already redefined the way we talk about monopolies. Now she's taking on the likes of Amazon and Meta. But who is she? And will she win? The Global Story brings you fresh takes and smart perspectives from BBC journalists around the world. Find us wherever you get your BBC podcasts.
0: Good morning. Uh, Welcome to Lynx 2023. Earlier this month on a stage in New York City, I moderated a panel discussing the early days of tracing crypto. Once a pie-in-the-sky idea from people like Sarah Mickeljohn, it has evolved into a fully-fledged industry. And one of the industry leaders is a company called Chainalysis, a billion-dollar company with clients in law enforcement, intelligence agencies, and even central banks. A fast company called Chainalysis, uh, the eight billion dollar crypto unicorn that crypto loves to hate. The CEO of Chainalysis joined me on stage. His name is Michael Groniger, and we talked to a crime-fighting IRS agent, Tigran Gambarian, as well. Uh, And he was a special agent for the IRS for a decade. Uh, So basically, an accountant who was actually had a gun too. He was a point man in nearly every major investigation. What's that?
1: No, no, so we love being called accountants with guns. Oh
0: good, I'm glad I started out well then. (laughs) And of course, there was Andy Greenberg, who has been reporting in this space for more than a decade. So please join me in welcoming them here today. Andy kicked off the conversation going back to the early days of cryptocurrency. And he explained what led him to write this book.
4: So 2010 or so, I was working on a, a different book about the cypherpunks, this this movement of radical libertarians who believed that they could use encryption tools, like cryptographic anonymity tools to take power away from governments and give it to individuals in really radical ways. Like they wanted to empower people to like have untraceable black markets on the internet and have untraceable assassination markets even. I mean, they dreamt of this world of true crypto anarchy. And so, yeah, when, when I came upon it, I was like, being the kind of reporter I am who covers this dark side of the internet, I was like, this is gonna unlock a a, a new world of cybercrime, like money laundering, online drug deals, terrorist financing, God knows what. You know, all that came to pass. I mean, it really did seem like Bitcoin was this thing where you could put uh, unmarked bills in a briefcase and send it across the internet to anyone in the world without revealing your identity. And it was working on things like the Silk Road, you know, the first dark web drug market. But I, I feel like embarrassed almost to sell this in front of these guys, because if you flash forward then to 2020 or so, that's when I began to see that I was not just like a little bit wrong about this. Like I was fully 180 degrees incorrect about my notion of Bitcoin's privacy properties. And I began to see that, no, actually, not only is Bitcoin traceable, but that actually you can follow the money on the blockchain even more than in traditional finance. And Tigran and Michael specifically, had used this to take down like the burglars behind the biggest heist in cryptocurrency in the time, and take down the biggest dark web market in history, and the biggest dark web uh, child sexual abuse network as well. So it looked to me like this was a book-shaped story worthy of you know spending years
5: writing.
0: Michael, could you explain how um, you came to this epiphany of how you can trace a transaction in the blockchain?
5: So first of all, I read Satoshi's white paper back in the days, uh, and he kind of uses this word of pseudonymity, pseudonymity, and he doesn't use the word of anonymity, and he does that on purpose. So he basically says that this is not anonymous money. In principle, they can't be traced, and I think there's a, like a one sentence there that basically says that there are some ways you can maybe do this one day. Then I read.
0: Let me just stop you for a second. So you're yes. talking about the white paper that actually kind of created. That
5: was the creation of the, the real innovation of, of Bitcoin. Like that's back in 2009, I think right. it, it was was from. Uh, then, then after that, I read uh, an article by um, Sarah Michael John. She kind of have tried out some of the early things, or ideas from Satoshi around like, how can you actually do this in practice? So she managed to do that at scale and like show this is doable. And then I start to tell like regulators and others in the year of 2014 that, this can actually be done. And they're all like, yeah, you say so, but that's not really happening. And I, I take that as a call to action and be like, I'll show it, it can't be done.
0: And Andy, you write about this in your book. Uh, when he explained this to you, was it sort of an epiphany to you that you thought, hmm, I thought this was anonymous and it's really clear it's not?
4: Well, uh, I, I did have that epiphany, but I I would say that, I mean, as Michael credited, uh, like Sarah was the was the one to put those first cracks in this Myth of anonymity. She was the one who came up with this, this bag of tricks. Uh, I guess that what, uh, you know, so, so she was the one, for instance, who, who showed that you could sh- create clusters of addresses. Basically, like the one person or a service is, you know, responsible for thousands or millions sometimes of addresses. And then she was the one, as you said, who did the undercover transactions to start to label those clusters, almost like a, like a narcotics cop doing a, a buy and bust. I bought marijuana from the Silk Road. I feel weird saying it. There's this a collective the gasp on this that page. went through the room. <laughs> You're not a federal federal agent anymore. So <laughs> it's fine in the state of stuff. As um, long as you pay taxes That's it, it's fine. Yeah. And uh, <laughs> yeah, so I, I asked Sarah, like, can you trace my transactions? And she did immediately. She showed that I had done basically uh, an illegal drug deal in, in public view. So didn't go to prison. Did you get the drugs? <laughs> oh, yeah. Graham from uh, Silk Road, two other. Yeah. Okay. We'll talk about it later.
0: <laughs> the investigation into Silk Road was one of the first tests in tracing cryptocurrency. Tigran Gambaryan, that former IRS agent with the gun, had been investigating other members of law enforcement, tracing payments between known criminals and, it turns out, federal agents.
1: The investigation was Carl Force and Sean Bridges, the DEA and, and Secret Service agents that were uh, working on the original Silk Road investigations out of Baltimore. And then through the course of their investigation, they had stolen uh, uh, tens of thousands of uh, Bitcoin um, and also caused a couple of uh, murders for hire to be placed on some Silk Road employees. It was, I mean, it, the point of it is that, to me, that was kind of the origin point for, in a proof of concept for companies like Chainalysis. You know, that was kind of what showed that it can be done in the court of law, that you can use blockchain evidence uh, to support criminal charges, right? And I think that's what it was important, is that prosecutors and, and are very hesitant to do anything new that hasn't been tried, and I was, had the an opportunity and the pleasure in working with prosecutors who were crazy enough uh, to do that, so we kind of set a precedent for uh, everybody else to kind of replicate, and, and it's amazing, and it's still being used to this day. Um, in retrospect, it was a very simple case. When you use chain analysis now, you can just go in and, it was easy. and it's yeah. super easy.
0: But for Michael, this wasn't about drug busts and Bitcoin. This was bigger than that. This was about cryptocurrency itself. And ground zero to test whether crypto tracing could actually scale was Japan, where nine years ago, you may remember, the world's largest cryptocurrency exchange at the time, Mt. Gox, went belly up, hundreds of thousands of Bitcoin nearly half a billion dollars worth, just disappeared. No one knew for sure if incompetence, mismanagement, or good old-fashioned theft was to blame. Michael was sure he could get to the bottom of it.
5: Uh, Mangox was the biggest exchange in the crypto space for many, many years, starting from 2010, and 11, and 12, getting into 2013, and in the 2013, they, they announced they're going bankrupt. The Bitcoin price has just that year went from, to $1,000 or so in the course of like six months or so, everyone is super exciting in the crypto space. And now uh, people can't take their money out of the Magox exchange, and they go bankrupt. And the entire 2014 goes by, and everyone expects to get their money back, and nothing really happens. We are basically in talks with the bankruptcy and with regulators in Japan, because we want the industry to not go down because of Mangox and we want to help the creditors in, in that case as well. So having different conversations with uh, with the bankruptcy trustee. And one of the ideas that kind of emerged pretty fast because there's a lot of confusion like on Reddit and everywhere else, basically people discussing did Mark steal the money? He was the CEO of, of the exchange. What actually happened? So there's a lot of speculation. And I felt that like if we dove into it and I looked at the database, I could probably figure it out. So that was kind of the, the idea. And then um, they wanted to meet us, so I went to uh, to Japan. And uh, then we basically start the conversation. They want to understand, like, how can this be done? What are you planning to do? What are the ideas around it, and so on? And at that time, I'm basically like, yeah, I think I can do this, kind of, right? <laughs> so, so that's, uh, and then we take it from there.
0: Were you before 30 lawyers in uh, Tokyo? sort of explaining the very basics of Bitcoin, or did they get it?
5: So they got some of the basic things around Bitcoin, I would say that, but, but I would say the real challenge in their case was, in a normal bankruptcy, there's no criminal element. It's just like money got lost because of like bad business behavior. That's what happens like every day. But in this mode of like, What should we actually trust here? Because a lot of people on Reddit says that there's a problem with the management. And now these people come to us and tell us that maybe there is and they want to help investigate it. So they want to, to, to gain to build some trust with us and figure out, is it right?
0: So you get access to the Mt. Gox database and you see there are some transactions and then you look at the blockchain and then you can work back from that to figure out what's missing, right?
5: Yes. So basically, I can take a wallet that's described in a database, and the database tells me all the transactions that wallet have done that's initiated by someone on Mangox. And then I look at those and I can see that that sums up to a certain amount. And then I can look at the blockchain and I can see what did that wallet actually do. And it turns out that it actually sent another six to 800,000 bitcoins more than the wallet in the database. But it's the same wallet and it's on the blockchain. So it meant that like, apparently someone have had access to that wallet in another way, so it had been breached. And that was a time where that became crystal clear.
0: When we come back, we explain how being able to confirm cryptocurrency transactions completely changed the landscape of cybercrime. Stay with us. Last week, we told the story of Mount Gox and its crash, led in part by a massive crypto heist carried out years before. The perpetrator, or at least one of them, turned out to be running another exchange in order to launder the money. It was called BTCE. And the investigator who dug into all of this was our IRS agent with a gun, Tigran Gambarian. And I asked him about that. And, and Tigran, how do you sort of fit in with this?
1: So this is around a time when... I was working the BTC investigation. Um, Can you
0: explain what BTC? Is? The
1: BTC was kind of this uh, unknown exchange. People made assumptions about it. People said it was based in Europe. Some people said it was based in Asia. It was nobody knew who the owner was, but it was it was a fairly large exchange. And I think at the time is uh, and I was as I was investigating it, you know. Um,
0: and you're with the IRS. at the time?
1: When I was at uh, I was agent with the IRS. Um, I, you know, I, we were continuously talking. I mean, I, I kind of. Uh, uh, make fun of Michael telling them that I need some shares in uh, Chain Analysis because I was probably their <laughs> best salesman at the time <laughs> earlier in the days. But, <laughs> but but really, I mean, we were working quite well together and it was, it was uh, we, you know, we were involved in quite a few cases. It wasn't just BTC. We're still kind of, it was all weird time where everything was kind of happening at the same time. And it was all just, uh, once we figure out that, you know, cryptocurrency was traceable, um, it kind of opened up a whole new world. It wasn't something that was anything special, right? Like, I don't, I mean, there's nothing special about like me or any of the work that I did. It was just, we were there first, and it was just the realization um, that this is actually doable.
0: So you're sitting at home, and Michael's writing code. I assume you're not writing code. So you're sitting at home and, and doing what?
1: I was doing accounting with a gun.
0: <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> uh,
1: no, I mean, I mean, what, what point? Well,
0: so the gun's on the table. And you're looking at your computer screen, uh-huh. and you're trying to figure out patterns. And Michael is doing it um, in a sort of coding way. What are, you, how are you doing?
1: So I didn't even know about Michael yet yeah, when I was started looking at cryptocurrency. When I started working at it, you know, um, you know, this case came up, and everybody's like, "Oh yeah, Bitcoin's traceable. We can totally do this." I'm like, and then I was like, "Has anybody actually done this?" Like, no, but it's all there, and so I had to actually go there, and, and I'm like. Am I, there's something wrong with me? Am I not getting this? Like I don't think this has been done. And, and every single time uh, where this is kind of brought up, there's no actual evidence of somebody using or tracing cryptocurrency to identify specific illicit transactions and specific uses of illicit transactions.
0: But what I'm trying to explain here is the sort of the evolution of things, right? So right. we start out with with right. Sarah Micklejohn at UCSD, who's like buying simple things like a Boston CD, oh. And then it expands even further to what Michael did at Malcox. So did you approach it differently because you were looking at things as a single person, whereas Michael was looking at something with wallets and clusters? Or did you guys come in and be able to put your both, your lenses on this in a way that, that strengthened it?
1: I think I was looking at a completely different investigation, right? and then we kind of met in the middle,
5: mm, right? I think so,
1: yeah. So it was, yeah. It was, he was working the Mt. Gox angle of it, and I was working kind of the, uh, the BTC angle of it, and then the, just the cross point became evident, like, wait, did somebody just create an exchange to launder all the money they stole from Mt. Gox? And I think that that's essentially what happened, is that, I mean, if I had stolen 800,000 Bitcoin, I'd probably create an exchange to uh, to launder it. So it's more it
0: efficient. Like, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah,
1: save on some fees. You know? <laughs> um, seed so capital.
0: Now, now you guys figure out uh, how to trace blockchain. So I'm wondering now, as we sort of kick this forward, how are we seeing criminals evolve in response to this, yeah. and um, how are you preparing for that?
4: Well, oh, there's absolutely been an evolution of the game. I mean, um, I, there's been an evolution on the cat side and the mouse yeah. side of this game. I mean, the The cat side is like in this room. I mean, chain analysis is part of a a huge industry, uh, competition for the smartest minds to find new ways of tracing cryptocurrency. I mean, that is not something that I would have imagined a decade ago. But yeah, the the mice are responding and they are adopting more and more privacy technologies like Monero, which uh, is like a newer coin that kind of tangles up everybody's transactions on the blockchain and integrates like mixing and obfuscation in every transaction. And Zcash, which, is, uh, uses this newfangled technology called zero knowledge proofs to essentially encrypt the entire blockchain. So there is, like, in theory, no no foothold or fingerprints of any kind for a chain analysis or a Tigrin, for that matter, to exploit. I don't know. It feels weird to say this on stage. I've seen a leaked chain analysis document that suggests that chain analysis is not uh, unable to trace Monero in a lot of cases. Um, I don't know about Zcash. Zcash looks like it's truly untraceable. Right. Um, so. I'm looking at Michael as yeah, I say this. Michael, for any, do you want to Give us an idea. I'm,
5: I'm putting on my poker face. No, I'm saying basically, um, I think I think one of the main premises, as as you described early on, was basically is crypto here to help the cyberpunk movement, right? Is that really the core value proposition, the strive towards true anonymity in this world? And I've always been of the opinion that that's actually not the case. The case were that like it's here to create. Uh, like financial freedom, it's basically here because value wants to go to the blockchain because it's more optimal to be there. And I think that's the reason why we have the growth in the crypto space. And then I got the same question, but like, will the miles run faster, be better over time? And can you follow that trend? And what's going to be the next thing? And I got that from investors for everyone. And I always met that with one one answer and say like, try to look at numbers. Like if if Ccash and Monero is going to be the biggest cryptocurrencies of 2023, Yes, then I was wrong. And then I probably will never be able to do this. But the fact is that that's not what people do. They buy Ethereum in big amounts. They go into Solana. They use Bitcoin still. They do a lot of other things. And they are not like, the main priority of those uh, cryptocurrencies is definitely not anonymity and hardly privacy for some of them actually. And that means the volume of, I would say legitimate cryptocurrency or like easy to trace cryptocurrency is huge today and monero and zcash has stayed like a pretty niche uh, problem right. and in the world of anonymity and like understanding different things there if the anonymity set is small it takes very few mistakes to actually be able to identify someone right. if the anonymity set is huge like millions and tr- billions of people yes then it becomes way harder and like it's much more costly to do
0: what are you saying tiban
1: so I don't think Satoshi, I mean, when, when, when was, when a Bitcoin uh, go, go live, it was, it was two months after in, uh, Lehman Brothers collapsed, right? I don't, yeah. think, I don't think he created the Bitcoin white paper to hide his marijuana purchases, right? <laughs> I, don't think, I don't think he was, it, this was his goal, right? His goal is to empower people and kind of limit the impact that you know, a bank collapse could have on users, right? Basically in a power and a control of the people so they can use money and not have to worry about a bank collapsing right so i think i mean the, the, i guess the anonymity of it is you know privacy of it is is an element of it but the public facing blockchain right being able to confirm transactions being able to you know not have to have a you know third party involved in a transaction i think that was the goal i can actually go in and using tools like chain analysis and confirm for sure this money came from a dark marketplace whereas a bank is only going to make assumptions Since to me Blockchain's kind of the best of the both worlds. It empowers people, but at the same time, it allows exchanges and law enforcement to actually play a big role in it and be able to identify these transactions.
0: So what I'm hoping is that our last half hour conversation gave you a little taste of what's in Andy's book, Tracers in the Dark. And I hope you'll uh, read it and learn more about this. And I hope we whetted your appetite. Thank you very much for being here this morning. Thank you. North Korea is a bit money-obsessed. For years, it was known for making the world's most perfect counterfeit $100 bill. And they've been behind some infamous heists. In 2016, North Korean hackers were on track to steal some $1 billion from Bangladesh's national bank. And they made off with $81 million by the time they were discovered. Now, North Korea is all about crypto. Authorities say they were behind last year's $100 million heist at the crypto transfer company, Harmony, and they appear to have come up with a new, ingenious way to launder their ill-gotten gains. Click here,
3: Sarah Wyman explains. Joe Dobson has been following North Korean hacking groups for years now, and he tracks them from behind his computer screen.
2: You can see a robbery happen in real time. You see where the funds are moving. You see what the getaway vehicle looks like. That's what's like day to day watching that happen in real time is, is fascinating.
3: And recently, Joe and his colleagues at the cyber threat intelligence group Mandiant have spotted a new example of their inventiveness. For the first time, they've documented North Korean hackers doing something called crypto washing.
2: So the way I like to describe it is I like to use a bank robbery analogy.
3: We love a bank robbery analogy. <laughs>
2: <laughs> Everyone can relate to a bank robbery, right? <laughs> <laughs>
3: When you steal cash, you've got paper bills. Maybe they're marked in some way. Their serial numbers might be tracked. And in the same way, when someone steals cryptocurrency, there are ways to trace it, with help from the giant digital ledger known as the blockchain. It's completely transparent. You know, anyone who wants can just download it and look at every transaction that's happening. That's Sarah Mickeljohn. She's the researcher who proved that the faceless users behind those Bitcoin transactions aren't really anonymous. I mean, we we could trace things quite easily ourselves just by accessing the blockchain. This discovery was game changing. It meant analysts and law enforcement could find stolen or dirty crypto.
2: So if someone, if if they were to steal crypto from me and then go spend it somewhere, I can go to that vendor and say, hey, look, you're you're taking stolen cryptocurrency and alert Mm -hmm. them.
3: But if you can launder that dirty crypto and somehow trade it out for untainted cash, well, then you can spend that Bitcoin or Ethereum without anyone knowing where it came from. Back in 2016, the North Koreans did an analog version of this after they stole millions of dollars from Bangladesh's national bank. And it turned out to be quite the project.
2: Uh, They spent, what, a a month laundering the, the, the funds that they got out of that bank heist.
3: The whole thing involved a casino, some actors. They even swapped millions of dollars in stolen money for poker chips. Like I said, it was complicated and expensive.
2: Even then they had to, you know, they had to pay all kinds of middlemen and other folks to help with that laundering process.
3: So, not surprisingly, now that they have billions of dollars of stolen crypto burning a hole in their pockets, they need a way to wash the dirty trail away. And what they came up with is essentially having some people print new money for them, which when you're talking about crypto means they mined some nice new, clean Bitcoin and they paid for that effort with the stolen crypto.
2: but yeah, when, when we saw it, it was very much a duh moment of, oh my gosh. like why didn't I think of that before? It really does make so much sense. like when, When you really sit down, you think about it, you think about the the laundering process, like how how can I take dirty crypto, turn it into clean crypto in a way where folks can't track it easily, but you still get most of the funds back.
3: Are you surprised that this is the first time you've seen someone washing stolen crypto this way?
2: I'm, I'm sure that North Korea is not the first one to use stolen cryptocurrency in this kind of laundering mining process. But to see a nation-state actor do it, I think that's notable.
3: Now Joe and his colleagues are on the lookout for others to start doing this, too. It's a way of avoiding the traditional banking system.
2: And now look, look at how sanctioned Iran is. Look at all the sanctions that were levied against Russia after the invasion of Ukraine. We would be fools not to think that uh, they don't take notice of how successful North Korea has been. If North Korea is doing this, how long until other nations is doing this? And how long until a non trivial portion of that mining process is run by nation states?
3: And all their billions in ill gotten gains could just vanish. I'm Sarah Wyman, and this is Click Here.
0: Here are some of the week's top cyber and intelligence stories. A cyber attack on a hospital in Ontario, Canada, is causing delays to scheduled and non-urgent care. Cornwall Community Hospital, a healthcare facility in eastern Ontario, said it discovered the attack last week and has hired cybersecurity experts to respond. Administrators said the electronic health record system had not been affected, but there were some delays to scheduling. The hospital has 175 beds and a staff of 1,200 employees, including 180 physicians. The attack's important because it follows a week in which Canada appears to have been in hacker crosshairs. The website for the Prime Minister's office was hit with several distributed denial-of-service attacks, as were websites for a state-owned electricity provider, Hydro-Quebec. The attacks come just days after Canada's Prime Minister, Justin Trudeau, met with Ukraine's Prime Minister. German automotive and arms manufacturer Ryan Mattel suffered a cyberattack late last week the company's industrial arm, which produces, among other things, auto parts, was targeted. The company said in an email to record a future news that its defense division, which produces military vehicles, weapons and ammunition, was still operating reliably. Although it's unclear who's behind the attack, the Russian hacktivist group Killnet posted a message on their Telegram channel last month urging its followers to launch a distributed denial-of-service attack against Ryan Mattel. The company's in talks to build a new tank factory in Ukraine. And finally, Google and a coalition of cybersecurity companies and organizations unveiled several new initiatives intended to encourage ethical hackers to discover and disclose vulnerability and to protect them from legal trouble when they do so. The companies have established a legal defense fund and an advocacy group called the Hacking Policy Council which will lobby for legislation and regulations to protect good-faith actors who find vulnerabilities and report them. This is a trend. The Justice Department recently amended its charging policy to explicitly discourage going after ethical security researchers. I'm Dina Temple-Raston. I'm the executive producer and host of the show. Sean Powers is our senior producer and marketing director, and Will Jarvis is our producer. Sarah Weinman is our writer-reporter. The show was mastered by Gabriella Glick. Our editing team is led by Karen Duffin and Lou Olkowski. Darren Ankrum does our fact-checking. And our theme and original music compositions are by Ben Lovingston. We also use music from Blue Dot Sessions. Special thanks to Andy Greenberg for his book Tracers in the Dark, which explains the evolution of this financial cyber warfare. And we'd love to hear from you. Please leave us a review and rating wherever you get your podcasts, or send us an email at recordedfuture.com. Check out our website; it has details about our shows and our whole show catalog at clickhereshow.com. That's a wrap for this week. I'm Dina Tumblerestin, and we'll be back on Tuesday.
2: Looking for more of the cybersecurity and intelligence coverage you get on Click Here? Then check out our sister publication, The Record, from Recorded Future News. You'll get breaking cyber news from reporters in New York, Washington, London, and Kiev, among others. And you'll see for yourself why it attracts hundreds of thousands of page views every month. Just go to therecord.media.